Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we just thank You so much for this time that we get to walk through Your Word to continue to see the story of salvation play out in the lives of the Israelites and be able to see Your love for us through it all, how we in this moment are the Israelites. And God, we just ask You during this time to fill us with Your Spirit, to make Your presence felt here, and to help us as, as we're walking forward to know that no matter what, You are at the center of everything. And so we trust you and we look to you in this time. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are in week, whatever it is, uh, towards uh, our, our series in Exodus. Uh, we've been in it for a while and we're going to keep trucking through it. But today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 17. So if you'd like to follow along, you're more than welcome. You can grab your books uh, or your Bibles right in front of you. Um, and yeah, Exodus chapter 17, that's where we'll be hanging out. Uh, and last week, if you were here, um, or even if you were, Here's, here's a recap. Last week, we talked about how Exodus is essentially the story of salvation. Exodus helps us in order to see what God is doing in our lives, how God works, how God operates, and how God gets us away from sin and into a life where we're following Him in all that we do. And so, we kind of talked about that idea of how God in Exodus is showing us the story of salvation in two ways. First off, we have justification which for the Israelites uh, was at the Red Sea. For us, it's at the waters of baptism. And what justification is, is in a moment, in an instantaneous moment, God is taking you from being a child of darkness and adopting you into being a child of light. And so it's God saying to you, watch me work. Watch me make it happen. And so for the Israelites, they, they thought they were free, they were marching along, and they got to the edge of the Red Sea, and they looked back, and they saw their captors. They saw the evil that had had them enslaved, and they were afraid. They were terrified, and in an instant, God split the Red Sea in half, allowed them to pass through, and as they came up out of the water, He closed it back down. And as they looked back, they saw the evil that had been over them for so long dead, never to affect them again. They went from being children of darkness to children of light. And in the same way, when we come to the waters of baptism or to the troth of baptism, we go from being children of darkness, and as we come up out of the water, we are marked as one of God's own. In an instantaneous moment, we are justified. Our original sin is left dead in the water behind us, and we're made clean. And then the second part of salvation that we talked about is sanctification. And in sanctification, it's a long, drawn-out process. It's a timely thing that takes our entire lifetime in order for God to work in us. And what it is, is it's God effectively saying to us, it's your turn. I'm going to work in you and help show you what it looks like to live a holy life. And what sanctification means is to be made holy. To be sanctified is through the Holy Spirit being made holy, being spiritually trained. And it's God working on you in order to pull all of that memory of the sin, of the death, of the slavery that you were in out of you. And what we kind of focused in on is this idea that you can take the person out of slavery, but you can't necessarily take the slavery out of the person. But God can. It just takes longer. The sanctification process takes a very long amount of time in our lives. And for the Israelites, we see it as they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. It took 40 years for God to pull all of that junk out of them. And for us, it's our entire lives. And so today, what we're going to focus on is kind of the end 
of the salvation story. And so we have justification, we have sanctification, and we have death. What a joyous day! Because at the end of it all, what do you have to look forward to? Death! You did it! The race is run! It'd be kind of morbid if we just talked about death for the next several, several minutes. So what we're going to do is we're going to change that and we're going to call it something else. We're going to call it glorification. And so what this is, is this is the moment when God is saying to you, welcome home. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. Welcome back into perfection, into what I had originally planned for you. And today we're going to talk about what glorification is. But even more so, how to be sure you get to that point. Because what hope do you have? What assurance do you have? How do you know at the end of it all that you will be glorified? That in this this moment of justification that you've walked through, in this lifetime of sanctification that you've been pulling through, how do you know you will ultimately get to that glorification? Can you lose it? Can you ruin your chances? And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Exodus chapter 17 in order to try to answer the question, what assures us of salvation? And the answer that we would have gotten from last week is really obedience. And so what we're going to dive into today is this idea of, does obedience ultimately save you? Because we've been justified. We've been raised right before God in the waters of baptism. We're being sanctified, but in sanctification, God takes you into the wilderness, He shows you His greatness, and He calls you to obedience. So if we end there, it really sounds like obedience is what's going to assure you of heaven. And so we'll, we'll jump into Exodus 17 to see if that's correct. So again, if you haven't opened yet, you've had time, um, so now you're just behind, and that's totally fine. Let's look at Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. So the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no, no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? And so what you're probably hearing in this is something that is almost identical to last week. Because last week, if you remember, the people didn't have any food. What they're saying is, did you bring us out here? Did you bring us up out of Egypt in order to kill us in the desert? And they were getting all frustrated and angry. And so what, where I was shocked in reading this is they just forgot again. Spiritual amnesia is incredibly real. They just got all the food they could ever want for, for their entire lives, or at least the entire time in the wilderness, and immediately forget how awesome their God is. God has just brought them out of Egypt. He just split the Red Sea wide open. He just made water two chapters before. Sweet. He just gave them bread and meat. Don't you think he could have just sent a little rain? Don't you think the people could have just asked, like, God, we're thirsty. Can, can you make it rain down on us? He just rained bread. How hard would it be to rain water? It's ridiculous. And yet, we fall into that same trap. How many of you have ever asked the question, why is this happening to me? What's going on in my life? 
How often do we grumble and complain about, you know, maybe the style of music in church? Or maybe about the size of your bank account? Or maybe about that idiot boss you have to go work for day in and day out? And yet, how many of you this morning woke up? This is your time. (laughs) All of you woke up. Okay, if you're in this room and you didn't wake up, you're a liar, okay? I'm going to call you a liar every week. Every week there is an opportunity for you to obey, and we failed again. That's okay. How many of you took a shower? Less hands. Yep. (laughs) That's okay. Some of you should. Next time we have another opportunity to obey. How many of you drove here? All right? How many of you, when you're done here, are either going out to eat or going home? Okay? How many of you get to go shopping? How many of you get to go do all these wonderful things, and yet how quickly do we forget when we don't get what we want? God has constantly been taking care of you. God constantly took care of the Israelites. And how quickly do all of us forget about the gifts and blessings that God has given to us? So what should have the Israelites said? How should have the Israelites responded? They should have gone in prayer before their God and said, God, you've brought us up out of bondage. You've cared for us with bread, with quail, with a pillar of smoke and fire to lead us around. Can you please give us some rain? But instead, in verse 3, they complain again. They grumble against Moses and they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us? which then results in verse 7, where Moses names the place where they're at, and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled, because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? And what I want us to do is just take a moment to focus in on these two words, Massa and Meribah. And what these two words mean is, as it says right there, um, quarreling and testing. But what's so much more significant about what you're looking at up there is that in the middle of the word Meribah is the word rib. And what that means in this moment here, what that means for us and what that means for the people who are, who are looking to God, is you are bringing a covenantal lawsuit up against the one who has come to you. And in Hebrew culture, a covenant is the exact same word that they used for cut. And so that's why when we hear about the first covenant that was made, uh, how God was a pot, cut a bunch of animals in half, and the pot walked through it. And then the next part of the covenant walked through it. And what that was supposed to symbolize is, if you break this covenant, this is what you should become. Cut in half, destroyed, killed, murdered. And if we go to the next slide, it'll actually show you what those three letters are. R-I-B. And in Hebrew, remember, you read from, from right to left. R-I-B, and what that is is a covenantal lawsuit being brought up against God. And so when Moses is talking about how they're testing and quarreling against God, what they're doing is they're essentially bringing up a theory to God of what they think is going on, which is, again, in verse 3, we see, did you bring us up out of Egypt in order to kill us? And what they're arguing is they're arguing for their point that God is guilty of premeditated murder. They're accusing their God of attempting to murder them. Again, how quickly they forget. And since they're not able to physically hold this God responsible, they instead go after his prophet. 
And so in Exodus 17, verse 4, we read, Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And what Moses is recognizing here is, again, this covenantal lawsuit that's being brought up against God. The only one here who's standing in his place is me. And if they believe it's, I'm guilty, I'm dead. So Moses is terrified. And if we remember what God told Moses in Exodus 4, before he called him, before he sent him into Egypt, you can go ahead and flip to verse 4 or chapter 4. He will speak to the people, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. And what God is telling to Moses right here is, I cannot physically be here because if anyone lays eyes on me, they're dead. And so you will be in my place. You will be like God to Aaron and to the people. And the people didn't forget that. The people are going to hold God's prophet responsible because to them, they're killing God. They're eliminating the biggest threat to their survival in their mind. And so once again, God is giving them an opportunity. He's checking in on their obedience, and they fail. And we all face these kind of trials. All right, maybe for us it's not water. Maybe for us it's something else. For the Israelites, it was water, which is a very real issue that they have to deal with. But for us, what is it that you don't think you can live without? What is it that's so important to you that you believe, without a shadow of a doubt, if you were to go one day without it, your life would be over? For some of us, it it might be a spouse. For some of us, it might be a child. For some of us, it might be a a certain kind of car, a certain kind of job. Maybe it's a, a kind of lifestyle you live that you've gotten used to. Maybe it's some kind of achievement that you feel like you need. You need that recognition from your friends, from your family, from your church. But ultimately, you feel as though that's the most important thing in your life. And if you don't have it, if you can't accomplish it, if you can't get it, or if you ultimately lose it, your life becomes miserable. Your life is hopeless. It's not worth living. And so, what what Exodus is trying to show you and trying to ask you is will you continue to trust God when you lose that one thing that you think you can't live without? Will our trust and our obedience and our worship continue even if there's no bread and no water, even if there's no job or no car? Or is it conditional? Do you tell God, you know, I'll, I'll trust you as long as you give me that, that, you know, that girl to be my wife or that man to be my husband? You know, I'll continue to obey you as long as you make sure I get that raise at work. You know, I'll worship you as long as I get to do it with a full band or with an organ or with, you know, slamming coconuts together, whatever it is. You know, as long as you give me what I want, I'll give you what you want. And we try to play this game with God, and this brings us back to our question What assures you of your salvation? Is it your obedience? Is it what you do? Is our assurance and hope for glorification impacted by what you're able to do? I mean, how many of you would make it if that were the truth? None of us. Each and every one of us would fail. But thankfully, our obedience isn't linked to our assurance of hope and of salvation and of one day being in glorification. 
And how do we know that? We get to look at Exodus chapter 17, verses 5 and 6, and this is God's response to the annoying, little complaining, whining Israelites who are sitting in the wilderness. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you and by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. They got their water. And so God, again, has every right in this moment, having been accused of murder, having been told, we would rather you be dead than continue to follow you because you, you clearly want to kill us. God's response to them is grace. It's love. It's water. And so what's the point of us as we're reading Exodus to continue to see this repeated failure to obey, this, this constant complaining and grumbling, this spiritual amnesia that continues to plague the lives of the Israelites? What is God doing? He's showing us that our salvation is in no way built on your ability to obey. He's showing us that even in being made holy, even in this lifelong process that we're walking through, God does not require obedience for salvation. Instead, it's on the obedience of His Son. It's on the work that He has already done. It's the work that He did on the cross. And so for us, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, our righteousness. For those of you who have been a part of the Lutheran church for a long time, you know in our hymnal, we have a bunch of hymns with a bunch of quotable lines, and and, and this is one of them. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, our righteousness. Your hope of salvation has nothing to do with your ability to obey. But for some reason, some of us forget that. The devil tries to trick you. The devil tries to get you into this mindset of desperately attempting to have some sort of control over your life. It tries to to trick us into thinking that we're living as if our obedience does earn our salvation, and then we create kind of a tally system up against what we're doing. And we try to convince ourselves that, okay, I want this, so today, today's the only day, today I'm not going to look at porn to make sure that I get that promotion at work. Today, I'm going to go the speed limit because I want to make sure that that I can marry this person over here. All right, today, I got to make sure I don't cuss or swear or anything so that God will make sure I get into the right school. We try to wheel and deal with God and tell Him, oh, well, you know, on this day, at this time, in this moment, I'm going to go ahead and not do the thing that I constantly sin in because I know if I do that, then quid pro quo, you're going to give me what I want. And yet that's not at all how God works and what that does to us in our psyche is it creates this mindset that when we fail to live up to our own expectations of what it takes to be saved, We have no hope because in creating that tally system, what you've created for yourself is a system in which you can never live up to what even you established for yourself because the threat of sin, the temptation of sin is so great that we alone cannot fight it. We need our God. We need His work, and if it's left up to us, we have no hope. We have no assurance Our faith is built on us, and we're a horrible substitute for Christ. 
So we try to obey to be saved, but the repeated failures of the Israelites, what they're showing us is that God saves us because of His love, not because of some debt of gratitude, not because He feels like, oh, okay, you know, you didn't drink today. Here, here, have some love. Like, it's nothing like that. He's loving you in spite of the garbage that you're doing. You don't obey to be saved. We obey because we already are saved. We obey as a response to what God has already done in our lives. It earns us nothing. What you do is is utterly worthless. And yet what Jesus has done, Jesus' obedience, Jesus' work, Jesus' death and resurrection, that's where we find our hope. That's where we find our assurance. That's why when we come to this rail in just a few moments, the grace that we are receiving, that's where we can put our hope. And your obedience is just an outward showing of what God has already done in your life. Because if left up to you, we'd fail. But for us, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, our righteousness. And so as you leave today, all I want you to remember is that your hope of salvation comes from no one but Jesus. You can't even add to it. You've already gotten it. And on that final day when He comes back or on that day when you're called home, you can rest assured that what awaits you is glorification because of what Christ has done and what He continues to work in you. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank You so, so much for everything that You've given to us, for all the blessings, all of the righteousness, all of the grace, the peace, and the mercy that You've blessed us with in spite of the junk that we continue to bring up, in spite of all the times we've missed opportunities to obey. God, You continue to love us through it. And so, God, in this time, in this moment, in this opportunity here, we just ask you to continue to fill us with your Spirit, to help us see how much you love us, and for us to see that even when we fail, you've forgiven us, you lift us back up, and you set us back on the path to have another try. God, day in and day out, we let you down, and yet every day you tell us, let's try again tomorrow. Let's try again tomorrow. Let's try again tomorrow. And God, we can't begin to thank you for that. And so we just ask you to continue to work in our lives and to continue to sanctify us so that on that day when you return or when you call us home, Lord, we rest assured that we are moving into glory. And God, for those of us who already know this, who are already assured of that hope, God, we just ask you to use us to help others feel the same because there's such a huge world out there that has no idea who you are. And so, God, we just ask you to use us. You've already taught us. Now use us. We trust this all to you in the name of your holy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.